John. Chapter 1, verse All right, I'm going to read the intro. Kind of went through and highlighted some of the stuff here so that we kind of have an idea of the environment of what was going on in society, what the, the letters consist of. Um, so this is just kind of giving an idea of what to expect when we begin uh, to get into the, the books of John. Uh, in the midst of the darkness of paganism and superstition, the Christian church was a beacon of hope, shining forth the light of truth. But the church in Asia did not exist in isolation from the surrounding culture. The plethora of competing ideologies inevitably posed a threat, both externally from false religions and internally from false teachers and their followers infiltrating the churches. The pressure had begun to take its toll on the churches of Asia. Some had split with the false teachers and their followers, leaving only two of the seven churches in the region that is addressed in Revelations chapter 2 and verse 3. Uh, only two were commended by the Lord Smyrna and Philadelphia. The other five were rebuked for worldliness and tolerating false doctrines. Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea. It was in this strategic location where the battle against the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of weakness in heavenly high places, had raged most fiercely. Uh, that John, the last living apostle, apostle, ministered. He had come to Asia many years earlier and settled in Ephesus, the capital city of the province. Though he was by now an old man, most likely at least in his 80s, age had not dampened John's fiery zeal for the truth, recognizing the dangers Threatening the congregation under his care, the apostle took up his pen to defend the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Um, and we see that in Jude 3. In our unclusivistic age of secularism, postmodernism, relativism, New Age cults, and militant world religions, the apostle's words of warning and assurance are both timely and relevant. As always, the church ignores them at their peril. The author, 1 John and Hebrews, are the only two New Testament epistles that do not identify their authors. But from the first century until the rise of modern destructive higher criticisms at the end of the 18th century, the church consistently identified the apostle John as the author of 1 John. 
Summarizing the evidence from the early church, the 4th century church historian Eusebius wrote, but of the writings of John, not only his gospel, but also the former of his epistle, 1 John, has been accepted without dispute, both now and in ancient times. Although John does not name himself in 1 John, as he also did not do in the gospel of John, the internal evidence strongly supports the testimony of the early church that he wrote this epistle. First, the epistle displays remarkable similarities to the gospel of John. Both works present a series of stark contrasts with no, al- with no third alternative. Light and darkness, life and death, love and hate, truth and lies, love of the Father, love of the world, children of God, children of the devil, being in the world but not in the world, to know God or not to know God, to have eternal life or not to have eternal life. Their grammatical styles are also very similar. The two books also have many words and phrases, some of which are found nowhere else in the New Testament in common. Some critics point out the differences between 1 John and the Gospel of John as evidence of two different authors. But those differences are debatable, inconsequential, and explainable by the different circumstances that prompted the two writings. Despite the differences, the vocabularies of 1 John and the Gospel of John are more similar than those of Luke and the book of Acts, Ephesians and Colossians, or 1 Timothy and Titus, which are known to have come from the same writers. Finally, the same theological themes pervade both works, including the Incarnation, 1 John 4.2 and John 1.14, of the Eternal, 1 John 1.1 and John 1.1, Unique, the Only Begotten, 1 John 4.9, John 3.16, the Son of God, 1 John 5, 5, John 20, 31. And he gives many other examples of, of parallel verses that agree with one another. The author of, of 1 John also claims to have been an eyewitness to the events of Christ's life. In contrast to the second generation Christians that he addressed, that considerably narrows the field of possible authors. It means that the writer had to have been one of the few who had been intimately acquainted with Jesus during his earthly life. And they're still alive many decades later when 1 John was written. Some critics attempt to evade the force of this argument by claiming that the writer's use of we in the opening verses refers to the church as a whole but appealing to the common experience of all believers would hardly be used to authenticate the writer's message. Further, if we, in verse 1 through 4, is the church as a whole, who are the you itself? Who are the you? This you results in an absurdity of the Christian community as dressing itself. It is nothing more than an unsuccessful attempt to avoid the obvious truth that the writer was an eyewitness, such an eyewitness was Apostle John. He clearly expected his readers to obey his commands unquestioningly, 
Only an apostle known and respected by those whom he addressed could have written such an authoritative letter and not given his name. Since it is clear that the same author wrote both the Gospel of John and 1 John, evidence that the Apostle John wrote the Gospel is also evidence that he wrote the Epistle. That evidence may be briefly summarized in five points that narrows the focus unmistakably to the Apostle. First, the author of the Gospel was a Jew, as is familiarity with the Jewish customs and beliefs indicates. Second, he had lived in Palestine as evidenced by his detailed knowledge of that region. Third, the author had to have been an eyewitness to many of the events he recorded since he gave numerous details only an eyewitness would have known. Number four, the author was an apostle. He was intimately acquainted with that with what the twelve were thinking and feeling. And finally, the author was the Apostle John, since his name does not appear in the fourth gospel. No other writer could possibly have failed to mention such a prominent apostle. Despite the unanimous testimony of the early church and the strong internal evidence that the Apostle John penned this epistle, some critics perversely insist on attributing it to someone else. Here's a little info on John. John was the younger of the two sons of Zebedee. Since James is almost always listed first when the two are mentioned together. A prosperous fisherman of the Sea of Galilee who owned his own boat and he had hired servants. John's mother was Salome who contributed financially to Jesus' ministry and who may have been the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. If so, John and Jesus would have been cousins. John was a disciple of John the Baptist. When the Baptist pointed out Jesus as the Messiah, John immediately left him and followed Jesus. After staying with him for a while, John returned to his father's fishing business, and later he became a permanent disciple of Jesus and was named an apostle. Along with James and Peter, John was a part of the inner circle of the twelve. After the ascension, he became one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. According to, to tradition, John spent the last decades of his life at Ephesus, overseeing the churches in the surrounding region, and writing his gospel and his three epistles. Towards the end of his life, John lived until the time of Emperor Trajan, Trajan and was banished to the Isle of Patmos. It was there that he received and wrote the visions described in the book of Revelations. Despite his reputation as the apostle of love, John had a fiery temperament. Jesus named John and James the sons of thunder. And two brothers, and the two brothers lived up to that name. Indignant when the Samaritan village refused to receive Jesus and the disciples and over, uh, overestimating their apostolic power, they eagerly asked the Lord, Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and to consume them? In, in the only recorded incident in the Synoptic Gospels in which John acted and spoke alone, he reveals the same attitude saying to Jesus, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, 
and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Though he mellowed towards people over time, John never lost his passion for the truth. According to Polycarp, John, the disciple of the Lord, going to bathe at Ephesus and perceiving the heretic, Serenthus within, rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, Let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. Clement of Alexandria relates how John fearlessly entered the camp of a band of robbers and led its captain, who had once professed faith in Christ, to a true repentance. And finally, although it contains no clear historical indications of when or where it was written, John most likely composed this letter in the latter part of the first century of Ephesus. As noted above, the testimony of the early church places John in the city during that period. The, apostle, the apostles' repeated reference, references to his readers as little children implies that he was much older than them and that he wrote 1 John towards the end of his life. The heresy John confronted appears to have been an, an incipient form of Gnosticism, which was beginning to develop towards the end of the first century. Further, the lack of any reference to the persecution under Emperor Dom Domitian suggests that John wrote before it began. Finally, 1 John was probably written after the Gospel of John, who estimates that at least 80% of the verses in 1 John reflect concepts found in the Gospel of John. Since John wrote his Gospel about A.D. 80 to 90, a date of A.D. 90 to 95 is not unreasonable for 1 John. As previously noted, the church fathers placed John at Ephesus during the time this letter was written where the aged apostle had oversight of many churches. He mentioned Gnosticism there. Gnosticism was an, an amalgam of various pagan uh, Jewish and quasi-Christian systems of thought that was influenced by the Greek philosophy, especially Plato. Gnosticism taught that matter was inerrantly evil and spirit was good. That philosophical dualism led to false teachers whom John confronted to accept some form of Christ's deity but to deny his humanity. He would not, according to them, have taken on a physical body since matter was evil. The denial of incarnation in Gnosticism took two basic forms, some known as do docetus, um, taught that Jesus' body was not real, physical body, but only appeared to be so. In sharp contrast, John forcefully inserted that he had heard, seen, and touched Jesus Christ, who had truly come in the flesh. Others, such as the heretic Serenthus, whose presence caused John to flee the bathhouse, bath taught that Christ's spirit descended on the man Jesus at his baptism, but left him before the crucifixion. John refused that uh, argument by asserting that Jesus was baptized was the same person who was crucified. 
And finally, and I'll close this part of it with this. Like any pastor, John could not stand idly by when his people were being assaulted by satanic lies of false teachers. Responding to the serious crisis threatening the church under his care, the apostle sent them this letter to help check the deadly plague. But the, the purpose was not merely polemical, but also pastoral, expressing his deep concern for his people. He wanted not only to refute the false teachers, but also to reassure the genuine believers. Thus, while the gospel of John was written so that the people may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they might have life in his name, 1 John was written to those who believe in his name, in the name of the Son of God, so that they might know that they have eternal life. By repeatedly cycling through the essential truths of Christianity, John, with increasingly deeper and broader disclosure, fortified his people against the assault of false teachers and reassures them that they possessed eternal life. First John thus spirals through the biblical balance of truth, obedience, and, and love. So how many of you remember a TV show many, many years ago. And the theme song started out like this. Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Anybody remember what that is? Cheers, yes. Cheers. Listen to the words of this theme song or, or this intro song. Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? All those nights when you've got no lights and the check is in the mail. And your little angel hung the cat by its tail. And your third fiancé didn't show. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Roll out of bed, Mr. Coffee's dead. The morning's looking bright, and your shrink ran off to Europe, and he didn't even write. And your husband wants to be a girl be glad there's one place in the world where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came you want to go where the people know well people are all the same you want to go where everybody knows your name where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came an old Marine Corps buddy, this is from Chuck Swindoll, an old Marine Corps buddy of mine, to my pleasant surprise, came to know Christ after he was discharged. I say surprise because he cursed loudly, fought hard, chased women, drank heavily, loved war and weapons, and he hated chapel services. A number of months ago, I ran into this fellow and after we had talked a while, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, You know, Chuck, 
the only thing I still miss is that old fellowship. I used to have with all the guys down at the tavern. I remember how we used to sit around and laugh and drink a pitcher of beer and tell stories and just let our hair down. You know, I can't find anything like that for Christians. I no longer have a place to admit my faults and to talk about my battles where somebody won't preach at me and frown and quote me a verse. I wasn't one, it wasn't one month later that in my readings I came across this profound paragraph. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit that there is to the fellowship that Christ wants to give the church. It's an imitation. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit that there is to the fellowship that Christ wants to give his church. You know, I remember growing up, I remember going with my dad down to the local tavern. You know, they really were like a family. They really were glad when you came in. They would share with one another's burdens. They would watch out for each other's backs. Everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. And nobody ever judged you because they were all the same. Most people really do want this type of fellowship. Most people really desire that type of fellowship, that type of relationship with their fellow human beings. You see, this is why kids without home lives join gangs. They're looking for fellowship. They're, they're looking for a family that will, will look after them, that will accept them as a part of theirs. And that's what the gang offers even if that gang is wicked, even if that gang is abusive, they still find acceptance in something. They're brothers. They become a family. They become brothers. They will fight for you. They will die for you. They will kill for you. But they expect, no, they demand the same from you. You see, we seek this fellowship in many places. There are people who come into the gym that I attend who spend most of their time talking. They sit on the edge of the benches and they talk with anybody that will conversate with them. They're just looking for fellowship. They just want to spend time with somebody of the same species to enjoy a time of conversation. You see, God created us with that desire for fellowship. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 says, It is not good for the man to be alone. We are created for that inner desire for fellowship. You see, the problem is that most people don't find that fellowship in church. 
like Chuck Swindoll's old Marine buddy. I still miss the old fellowship I used to have with all the guys down at the tavern. I miss that. I remember how we used to sit around. We'd laugh. We would drink a pitcher of beer, and then we would tell stories. We would just let our hair down. I miss that too. I can't find anything like that for Christians. I no longer have a place to admit my faults and to talk about my battles where somebody won't preach at me or who won't frown at me or won't quote a, squirt, a, a verse to me. How sad is that? How sad is that? That's the one thing I miss. I miss the ability to fellowship without being judged, to express my needs and my hurts without being preached at. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have fellowship in church? I mean real fellowship. Do you have anyone in the church that you just get together with during the week? You go fishing, you go hunting, you just have a barbecue with? Someone that you go watch a movie with or you just hang out with and talk? Or are you just too busy? You see, that's the problem. That's the real problem is that we're just too busy. We can't squeeze any more things into our life, including fellowship. We're just too busy. Here a couple of weeks ago, I, I went over to my brother's house, and I uh, was dropping my truck off. We was gonna, he was going to take it over to the shop for me on Monday, and I went over there, and, and we went up, and they were all sitting around on the porch. Everybody was just sitting around. Ronnie and Jay was there, and, and uh, man, we just sat around and talked. And I enjoyed the fire out of that absolutely loved it and you know what i had to leave because we had plans we had to go somewhere else we were too busy to continue the fellowship that we were having but it just reminded me how much i desire that how much i desire and man we sat around and laughed and we told stories and we were just talking we weren't doing anything there wasn't any food involved there wasn't a pitcher of beer involved that i know of that was a joke. I, you guys are so serious this morning. Listen, it's okay not to over-spiritualize your get-togethers. It's okay just to hang out with people from the church, and it, and it isn't always spiritual. We tend to spend more time with our unbelieving friends than we do our believing friends. So my question is, who's influencing us? Listen, right off the bat, before we get in into John, I want to challenge you. If you never get together with the people of this church, make an effort to do so. Make an effort. Find somebody, find a couple, find someone that you can get together with. <coughs> I know my wife keeps trying to get the ladies together. 
just this Saturday, they had a big tea party here at the church. They had a guest speaker come in and, and, and spoke to them. But my question to you is this. Do you realize that Jesus is going to the cross is less about salvation and more about restoring our fellowship with our Creator? Fellowship. You see, salvation is a part of that. Of course, salvation is a part of that. But the, the, the greatest need was our fellowship for our Creator. A restored relationship with Jehovah is the main purpose, is the main reason. You see, that is truly what is missing in an unregenerate heart. And we look for it in every other place that we can go. We look for it in sex. We look for it in drugs. We look for it in alcohol. We look for it in money. We look for it in power. And they all leave us feeling unsatisfied. When you reach that pinnacle, when you think you found what it is that you need, you still feel unsatisfied. So now, let's go to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to read through verse 7 this morning. We won't get that far, but we're going to read that far. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him, And declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. You know, I always thought of John as the disciple that Jesus loved. <coughs> I always had this picture of John with his head laid upon the breast of Jesus. That's always the idea that I had, this thought that I had of John. I never looked at him as the, the son of thunder. I never thought about this aggressive side of him. I never thought about this fiery zeal that he had for the gospel. But here we see, unlike Paul or unlike Peter, when he opens his letter, he doesn't open it with any pleasantries. He just goes right into the the problem at hand. He says, from the beginning, 
from the very beginning. Nothing has changed from the beginning. The message of redemption has never changed. From the fall of man, God has always offered a way back into fellowship with him. From the very beginning, nothing has changed. You see, the structure of every true proclamation of the gospel is the same. You must first have faith and repentance. That has never changed. Every true representation of the gospel mentions the kingdom of God is at hand. They proclaim the merciful and the gracious availability of divine forgiveness. <coughs> and they urge sinners to restore their fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And like Peter, John is concerned about the false teachers that have found their way into the church. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and they will perform great signs and wonders to, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. You see, they try to undermine the church, trying to lure the followers of Christ away from the body of Christ. That's their mission. You see, listen, any alteration from God's divine word is a direct attack on the author. Do not add to it. Do not take away from it. Do not add to it or take away from it to make it more acceptable to society. Do not add to it or, or, or take it away from it to make it more marketable to society. God's word is to be preached without apology, pure, unsugar-coated. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9 says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. He said the word of life. Of course, the word of life is what the gospel is all about. Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. John chapter 1, not 1 John, but John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
So this isn't the first time that John describes Jesus Christ as the light or the word of life. And then John lifts four ways that he perceived that word of light. Four ways. First off, John said he heard. From the very lips of Jesus himself, he heard. He heard the parables. He heard the sermons. He heard the private conversations. He heard the counseling that Jesus gave them at at moments of privacy. Now the word that's translated heard here indicates that it was something that he heard in the past, but it affects his presence. Everything that he heard then affects how he lives now. Not only did John hear, but it says he also saw, have seen. This is the same idea that the things that he saw then affect the way he lives now. Now, this was not just a vision. It isn't some vision that he had in the past. He physically saw with his own eyes Jesus in the flesh. But then it says he also looked upon. This is more intense. This is a long searching gaze. What he's saying is, is all of the miracles that I saw, all of the things that I seen pointed to him being the Messiah. He says, listen, I knew the people who were healed. I knew the blind man who had been blind his whole life. I've known him since he was a child. I saw him healed. I knew the man with the withered hand and I saw him heal him. I knew the man that begged because he was uh, paralyzed. I saw him heal him. I seen him more than once interrupt a funeral and raise somebody from the dead. I seen him cast out the demons from the young, from the middle aged, from the old. I knew these people. Everything he did pointed to him being the Messiah. I knew these people. I saw it. I inspected what he did. And it proved to me that he was the Messiah. His power over demons, disease, nature, and even death proved to me he was the Messiah. His authority to forgive sin. His authority to give eternal life. He proved that in everything I saw. And then he says, and our hands handled him. Now, the word that John used here actually means to grope around like a blind man. Jesus used the same word in Luke chapter 24 and verse 39. He says, Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. 
You see, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then John says that the life was manifested to make visible those things which were hidden. That's what he means. He made clear those things that have been a mystery to us all these years to reveal what life? The divine life of Jesus Christ was revealed. You see, God revealed it to John, but then it became his responsibility his responsibility to share this with others, (coughs) to bear witness to what he saw, to bear witness to what he heard, to bear witness to what he touched, and to proclaim the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. But why share it? Why not just take this and use it so that I can be more important than everybody else, to elevate myself above everybody else? You see, the sole purpose of why we declare this to you, the desired outcome we see is in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. That which we have seen, have heard, we declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It is that we may have fellowship. Just as we talked about in the beginning of our message, that was the purpose, to have fellowship with one another. Listen, this is more than just a partnership with those who have the same beliefs. This is more than just a gathering of people who have the same ideas. This is a fellowship, a family gathering. No, this is a mutual life. A love of those who are one in spirit. You see, this is a natural consequence of our fellowship with God the Father, which is also a natural consequence of our fellowship with the Son of God. It's all natural. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9 says, God is faithful who has called us into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And John 13, 35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love of one another. I spoke of the guest speaker that my wife had who come here for the, the tea party. And she told my wife, and I found this very interesting. She said that she could tell that the church loved God and loved each other just by how much pride that we took into the beauty of God's house. 
She said, I looked around and I seen how beautiful this church was. And I could tell that this was a church who cared about God and who cared about each other because of how well you take care of his house. I said, how interesting that is. How wonderful. What a testimony that is. Listen, I have no doubt that you love one another. No doubt whatsoever. I was talking to Jay out on the porch this morning, and, and, I, and I told him, I said, I have no doubt that we love one another, but I think we could do better. We need more fellowship. We need more than just getting together on a Sunday morning to meet together. We need to be getting together throughout the week. We need to let the world see us coming together as a family, as friends, to fellowship with one another, to do things together. You know, I would do something every week if I thought it would help. I'd have a dinner. I'd have a, a, a outing. I would do something every single week if I thought people would show up. The problem is we get so busy that it falls to the wayside. And the more you do throughout the church, your crowds begin to dwindle. Listen, go fishing. Go hunting. Go shopping, ladies. Get together and go shopping. Now I'm getting all the evil eye from the husbands. Play cornhole. Get the games out. Get the board games out. Sit on the back deck and just talk. Larry and I sat on the back last night, and he said, man, this is what I love out here. He said, I love sitting out here. We were watching the birds. We were looking at the crooked building up in the lot in front of us. He was talking about the work he's doing on his house. Now, I don't know how long we sat out there, Larry, an hour, hour or two. We sat out there. We had, now, the main reason we came was for the pineapple, uh, pineapple upside-down cake that my granddaughter made for her grandma, but Larry turned it into a uh, fellowship time. But just get together and talk. It doesn't have to be anything extravagant. Sit down for coffee somewhere. Just talk. I love when, when Ronnie and Jay and all of us get together and have breakfast or we go have lunch. somewhere. I love it when he calls me and says, hey, we're going to breakfast. You want to come? I love that. Find somebody in this family to get together with and to fellowship with. Make it a priority in your life. Make it a priority in your life. Find a spot you can squeeze it into your busy life. If you have to schedule it in, then schedule it in. But find somebody. You see, the purpose of the gospel is fellowship. Fellowship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit, and with each other. Would you stand to your feet? Father, what a wonderful message. And God, you know my heart. God, you know the, one of the most attractive things that I've had with this church, with this body, and with this community 
is that they are like a big family. God, they're always helping somebody. They're always overdoing things for someone. That's what I love about this community. But God, you had revealed to us that it's even more than that. That God, maybe we can take lessons from the local bar. Maybe we can learn to gather just to enjoy time together. Maybe we can make our fellowship and our friendships with those that attend church with us a priority. God, and nobody's more busy than I am. God, I understand what it means to be busy. But I also believe that this is important. I believe that this needs to be made a priority in our lives. And God, I pray that for each one of us here today, that we would clear a slot out on our calendars, that we would pencil in time to spend with family members of this body, that we would become a church that undeniably loves one another, that enjoys spending time together, that we might be a beacon on a hill, a light that shines in a very dark world. And now, Father, as we conclude this service, I pray you go with us today. I pray for peace. I pray for rest today. God, remember those prayer requests that we had today. And God, I pray you bless your people. I pray their cups overflow today. We ask all these things in Jesus' very precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for coming.